Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, an ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the music of the English composer Christopher Fox. That was the opening of Christopher Fox's Edfas Lebhaft, composed in 1983, one of the earlier works in his catalogue. It was played by the Ives Ensemble 
from the CD of Fox's work on the Métier label. It's always hard to introduce any composer's work by one piece, but this one strikes me as not a bad choice, as it immediately shows us one of the characteristics of Christopher Fox's music, his bringing together of apparently disparate elements under one roof. In this piece, those elements include, firstly, serial music, here represented by Anton Webern, the piece's dedicatee, the title Edfas Lebhaft is the tempo marking on the first movement of Webern's Concerto, Opus 24, and secondly, a kind of spectral music. In Edfas Lebhaft, Fox takes his basic material, a row of nine different pitches, and derives further material by using tones from the harmonic spectra of those pitches. You can hear this in the extremely intense microtonal lines that begin almost immediately under the glare of the opening brass notes. We have here a very striking clash, or let's call it a meeting, between the tempered pitches of the nine-tone row and the non-tempered tuning of their various upper partials, played as real notes by the instruments. It's a delicious sound, brought about by the unlikely alliance of these two musical bedfellows, serialism and spectralism. Not all of Fox's early music sounds like this piece, however. Take a listen to the last movement of his American Choruses, settings of Allen Ginsberg for voices and two electric organs, completed in 1981, shortly before the piece we just heard. In this last movement, you'll hear, if you listen very carefully, words from Ginsberg's poem, A Transcription of Organ Music.
That was the opening of the final movement of Christopher Fox's American Choruses, performed by the English vocal group Exaudi on the NMC label. I love the incredible smoky texture of that piece. It's like finding yourself in a thick fog late at night. But here we're miles away from either the serialism or the spectralism that informed the opening piece I played, and have somehow found our way into the world of drone minimalism. But, given when this piece was composed, 1981, it's a highly unusual, atonal, dissonant kind of drone minimalism. Fox says in a programme note for the piece that it draws on the music of Terry Riley, but pretty indirectly so, I'd say. If anything, the piece seems to me to look to the future, to the later, dense, multi-track works of Phil Niblock. American Choruses was one of the pieces Fox included in the doctoral portfolio he submitted at the University of York in England, and the piece is dedicated to the founder of the York Music Department, Wilfred Mellors, a brilliant and charismatic, if undeniably eccentric, professor, who was then one of the few British champions of the American experimental music which nourished a lot of Fox's work then and subsequently. Thus far, we've heard the impact of serialism, spectral music and minimalism on Fox's early compositions. The pieces I've played so far were both made when he was still in his 20s. This may suggest a composer searching for his own voice, but to me, the music tells a different story. The voice is already there. It may, alternatively, suggest a composer who indulges happily in a sort of promiscuity of inspiration, taking ideas wherever he finds them, with the purely pragmatic consideration that they put his creative imagination in gear. This may be so, as it would be in the case of many another composer, but it's hardly the full story. This promiscuity theory can be found in one of the early reviews of Fox's work, where a distinguished critic praised the stylistic disunity of his output and suggested that the motor driving his creativity was the idea that every piece be as different as possible from the previous one. There's probably a grain of truth in this too, but I believe there's something else, which I'll attempt to define in a moment, that nonetheless binds his work together. Christopher Fox was born in 1955 in York, that pleasant walled city in the north of England, the son of an English father and a German mother. He developed an interest in music at school, and after initial studies in Liverpool and Southampton, went on to do his doctorate, as I mentioned, at the University of York, studying with the composer Richard Orton. It was there I first encountered him, around 1983. But I didn't see much of him, partly because he was a few years older, and partly because he had the reputation of always being off in Germany. And I suppose that was literally true. More alarmingly, he had already been to the Darmstadt summer courses, the very idea of which struck fear and loathing into my youthful self. Indeed, Fox has always been one of those English composers who seem perfectly at home on the continent, a breed much rarer than you might imagine. But therein lies an important clue to his musical personality. In a recent bio note written for that fine and distinguished new music journal Tempo, Fox describes himself as, quote, innately independent, unquote, someone who's chosen to conduct his career at a tangent to the mainstream music industry. He says, I've based it instead around close collaborations with a number of performers. Thereby, he has set an example that, dare I say, others would do well to follow. Pretty much all of his large output has been performed, much of it many times over, 
and not just by the performers for whom it was originally written. A lot has also been recorded commercially. As I speak, there are at least two new portrait discs in the works. His attitude is partly a musical-political matter, in that he has, he says, always wanted to work with people who had actively chosen to be in the room with me. This, of course, rules out for him a certain sort of commission, where composer X will be paired with orchestra Y at the suggestion of a festival director or programmer. There's a level of anonymity in these pairings that does not attract him. This means that there are no operas in his output, no concertos, nor indeed, until this very year, anything for symphony orchestra. Fox has a preference, metaphorically speaking, for carving precious stones, often quite small-scale ones, and sometimes arranging them into collections. He tends to avoid the so-called big statement. But his is an art that says much through its very modesty, by the freshness of the sometimes oblique way he looks at and listens to the world. It's this quality of obliqueness that seems to me one of the keys to his output. I mean this in a positive sense, and I mean it in two different ways. Oblique in the way his pieces often come into being, and oblique in the way they behave once they get started. Let's take the latter first. For me, many of Fox's pieces, having started out on musical terra firma, progress in odd ways that are extremely engaging to listen to, but are not what I would call logical. Rather than going from A to B, let's say, they'll get to B eventually, if that's where they want to go, by the most delightful sidetracks, remaining on the scent but getting waylaid or distracted by unexpected occurrences. Let me play you what seems to me an example of this, from his wonderful string quartet 1-2-3, composed in 2006. This begins with a very clear idea, and then many strange things happen before we find our feet again. Thank you. 
As I hear it, where we stop now is one of the logical possibilities of where the opening music might lead us if we were going on a tidy journey from point A to point B. So, the repeated pulsing Ds of the opening lead us to the dyad we just reached, B to D, which implies, possibly, the relative minor. Let me put it this way. You can imagine a less imaginative, post-minimal composer making a nice piece that does this quite straightforward harmonic movement without negotiating all the fascinating off-ramps that Fox, in his oblique journey, takes us down. The music even seems almost to break down at one point, with that low cello note preceding a brief silence. Need I say, I find this kind of oblique journey far more engaging to listen to than a well-made systems piece that does everything, so to speak, correctly. For sake of accuracy, I should add that Fox does have some strict systems pieces in his output, but they are sometimes oblique in other ways. That extract from 123 we heard was from an excellent live performance by the Smith Quartet, for whom it was written. I want to suggest now a second sense in which Fox's music is characterised by an oblique way of looking at things. I wrote an article lately in which I proposed the idea that Fox will often use curious details as a spur to his creative imagination. Strange little ideas or observations that another composer might pass over as being too trivial or unpromising to bother with, but which are substantial enough to inspire him. These oddities seem to feed his creative imagination and have led him into some highly resonant and evocative places. Not every piece will get going in this way, of course, but quite a few of them do. Take his composition Blank, written in 2002 for any three sustaining instruments. This uses an oddity of tuning, an interval known to theorists as the syntonic comma, and makes it the conceptual basis of a substantial and beautiful 11-minute piece. The syntonic comma results from the difference between tuning four pure perfect fifths, say C to G to D to A to E, and tuning two octaves plus a pure major third, say C to C to C to E. In this case, the interval between the two slightly different derived versions of the E will be just over a fifth of a semitone, a subtle difference, but big enough to matter and to be audible. Here's the higher E followed by the slightly lower E. Now, here's the higher with the lower added, making a dyad. The wah-wah-wah-wah-wah you'll hear in the resulting sound, known to acousticians as beats, is the result of their collision, and is featured prominently in Fox's piece, Blank. Throughout music history, these commas, while theoretically straightforward, were in practice regarded as a nuisance, an impediment to playing in tune and to the use of certain harmonic procedures. With the adoption of 12-note equal temperament during the 19th century, they vanished, the price being that, as a result, no musical interval apart from the octave was actually in tune. Fox's blank uses the syntonic comma to great effect. This tiny detail, apparently of little consequence, is no longer seen as a nuisance, but is used to help weave a rich sonic tapestry. Here's the beginning of the piece. 
If you listen carefully, you'll hear what seem to be some oddly tuned intervals, and then, about 40 seconds in, you'll start to hear some pretty clear beatings, the result of two instruments playing the same pitch a syntonic comma apart. It was only when he had the idea to exploit the differences between the two differently tuned versions of the same note, Fox says, that the piece began to shimmer. That was the opening of Christopher Fox's Blank in a recording by my ensemble Trio Scordatura from our portrait disc of Fox's music on the Métier label. We did the piece on violin, viola and keyboard, but many other combinations are possible. I'll confess that when I first programmed Blank for our concerts, I was a little anxious as it struck me as being a tough listen for the audience. But in fact, it's gotten more than the average amount of positive audience feedback, and we've done it now seven or eight times in the past couple of years. What I'm describing as Fox's oblique approach to musical ideas can be understood in psychological terms. You might say that his musical imagination thrives on breaking down the functional fixedness of objects and ideas, with a type of insight that solves problems, say, how to write a solo cello piece, by viewing materials in unaccustomed ways. By thinking of the cello bow as a visual presence, say, rather than as a purely functional object needed to make sound. He did exactly this in several pieces from a series of generic compositions written at the end of the 1990s. Generic composition number three, for a plucked instrument, began from the observation of the varying contact between a player's left and right hands. Generic composition number four, for a bowed instrument, focuses on changes in the direction and length of bow strokes. As creative concepts, these have something of the beginner's mind about them. It's as though the composer is able to view the activity of instrumental performance free from his accumulated knowledge of music history and tradition. It's a bit like an anthropologist who views a human being in the midst of a ritual he's never before witnessed and comes away with a decidedly strange view of what's actually going on. In this case, the oblique views generate pieces, Fox says, that delight in taking not very much and making a lot out of it. A further example of a Foxian detail that, if observed strictly, has the power to significantly alter the nature and effect of a piece, 
comes in the marvellous piano work More Things in the Air Than Are Visible, written for Philip Mead in 1994. The piece uses tape, or nowadays audio files, in the first and last of its three movements. The playback in the last movement, Fox writes, should be, quote, an unedited recording of an oral landscape within a 10-kilometre radius of the concert hall, unquote. The effect of this, when it begins at the end of the second movement, is to whisk us away from our comfortable listening space and to transport us mentally outdoors to the middle of a field, say, or beside a busy road, with no idea how we got there. Fox's insistence that the recording be unedited means it has every chance of being quite uninteresting, lacking any obvious charm or skill, but the detail of its needing to be recorded near the performance venue is more significant, with many implications for the piece itself and for the pianist. First, a different recording will be necessary for almost every performance. A pianist touring the piece, say, will him or herself have a different experience of this movement every night. Secondly, the geographical specificity means that the recording may capture some sense of local colour, a quality that the person making it, whether it's the pianist or someone else, could of course choose to heighten consciously or not, with evident consequences for the resulting music. Thirdly, there's the appealing idea that the piece has really begun some hours or even days before the pianist reached the concert hall. One imagines, for example, the performer driving to the venue and stopping off en route, making a recording beside a busy motorway or by a quiet canal or in an empty hotel bar. The act of recording, unless done purely mechanically, for example at exactly 4pm on concert day, regardless of where you are at the time, involves an act of listening, the exercising of choice and taste. You might say that in this sense, the music has already begun at that moment and will be completed in the concert hall. So here's the end of the second movement and the beginning of the third from Christopher Fox's More Things in the Air Than Are Visible.
That was an extract from Christopher Fox's More Things in the Air Than Are Visible, played on a Métier disc by Ian Pace. As I've been playing only extracts of Fox's music so far, I'd like to end this programme with a complete piece. This is a very recent score, called Quintet, for any five low sustaining instruments, composed in 2012. This is almost an example of a systems piece, except that the direction the process takes is never fully predictable. You might even call it oblique. The piece uses the principle of some tones and difference tones, acoustical phenomena that are present in nature when two or more pitches are played together. They can sometimes be heard by the unaided ear, but we generally ignore them when we listen to music. In Fox's quintet, the composer writes, sustained sounds generate more sounds with the minimum of composerly intervention, using some and different tones. Reinforce an initial tone with a second note an octave higher, and this creates a sum tone, a fifth above the second note. Reinforce that new third note with a note two octaves lower, and there's a difference tone, a fourth lower than the third note, and so on. Of course, you don't have to follow all these events to enjoy the piece. If you do, however, want to study the piece, the complete score, which is only one page long, is up on Fox's excellent website, foxedition.wordpress.com. The result of this quasi-process is a new harmonic world, one that opened up in Fox's music quite early on, a world that he's been exploring ever since. The performance you'll hear now is an unedited studio recording, not yet released, by Trio Scordatura, with Alfred Schmidt and Elisabeth Smalt both playing violas tuned a fourth lower than normal, and myself playing keyboard, were augmented by Fies Houten and Carlos Galveth on bass clarinets. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end this programme with Quintet from 2012 by Christopher Fox.